Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Julie Douglas. Uh, Julie, I was, uh, over the weekend, I caught the film John Carter that came out. Are you familiar with this one at all? I am. Uh, you know, the, some dudes at Pixar behind it, Disney behind it, based on Edgar Rice Burroughs' uh, stories of, of Mars, in which this character, John Carter, ends up traveling there and having all sorts of swashbuckling, princess-laden adventures. And, uh, and it's a fun flick. I, I recommend people see it, if that's the kind of thing you're into it. Mm-hmm. Into. Uh, uh, McNulty from The Wire shows up as the villain, which is fun. But, uh, but, but what really got me thinking... And, and how it ties into this podcast is that it really calls back to an age when sci- the science fiction of the day uh, is emerging from this idea that Mars could conceivably be uh, a habitated world or mm-hmm. a world that had been habitated by a a civilization, not just a, a, some organism living deep in the soil, but it could have had a civilization on it uh, in the past or even in the present. And it's just amazing to think back to that time it's, and, and, and try to imagine that being possible in your mind, whereas today we have this, uh, we know that Mars is virtually lifeless, mm-hmm. and it, it, even if even if it has uh, life in it, it is uh, it's not cities, it's not things that can think in in a way that we understand. You know, it's not it's not that uh, that vision of swashbuckling adventure that Edgar Rice Burroughs had. Instead, we're we're looking uh, even farther out. We're, we're looking. Our, we're right. having to cast our dreams even farther to try and imagine other worlds that could be like Earth, because that's it's kind of a, a simple thing. We kind of want, on on this very basic level, we want to find that other Earth. We want to find our twin out there in the galaxy and know that we are not alone. Right. That's always been the other, the question, right? Are are we alone? Um, you know, is there extraterrestrial life out there? Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about even SETI, uh, the organization that is committed to trying to find a form of life uh, out there. And as you said, it's really interesting to think that at one point, all of this just sort of existed in our minds, this idea of what is out there in the cosmos, not mm-hmm. really knowing, not having the sort of data or the technology to substantiate um, our uh, our theories. And, uh, you know, we just talked about Prometheus, and we talked about how they were journeying to an exoplanet. Yeah, or and, an extrasolar planet, the idea that it's, it's a planet right. that is encircling a, another star. Which is not, despite what you see in Star Trek and, and everything, it's not uh, not in every not every star is going to have planets. Right, right. An mm-hmm. exoplanet too. I mean, planets beyond our solar system. This used to be just a theory as well. Right. So it's, it's in context of of thinking about 17 years ago. It's pretty amazing that we know what we know now, and it does. The question now doesn't isn't are there exoplanets? The question is. Where is that Earth-like planet, and does it contain life? That's that's where we're going toward now. Well, Seventeen years ago, that we were looking back to Hubble, right, right. and uh, cast our gaze out outward into the stars, and was able to identify what twenty three hundred planet candidates based on distance to stars. Well, first of all, they identified two hundred billion star systems. Okay, so this was news. It wasn't like, oh, hey, here's our solar system, and then nothing. Yeah, uh, the two hundred billion star systems, and. Um, and, and they did this by gathering light for hundreds of hours and and staring into deep space and taking all these calculations and, and figuring this out. And it was amazing. So then they took that information and 
the Kepler mission, which we'll talk about a little bit, um, was able, as you say, to identify 2,300 um, possible planets, exoplanets. Uh, we say possible because we don't know enough information about them. They actually call them planet candidates. Okay. And they, haven't, they haven't made it past the candidates. They haven't made it past it. Yeah, they haven't been vetted yet. Um, but of these, we know the dimensions and weight of 200 planets. Okay. And um, we actually have the composition of atmospheres for 12 planets. This is amazing stuff. And we're particularly interested in those planets that fall within that uh, habitable zone, that sort of Goldilocks zone. Because you, you look at our planets. We have, uh, and we went into this on the, the Stuff to Blow Your Kid's Mind video series. Mm-hmm. You have uh, You have Venus. Which is uh, too he- too heavy. The atmosphere is too pressurized, mm-hmm. and it's too hot. You go over to Mars, uh, you know, a little far too far to the right, and you find not enough atmosphere and intense cold. Right. But right there in the middle, Earth, it's just right. The uh, we live in this golden zone. That's we are perfect. the Goldilocks. Yeah. Yeah. We've evolved to life has evolved as we know it to exist within these very slim parameters. Yeah, we're just, uh, specifically talking about the orbital distance from a star where liquid water on a planet could exist. Yes, um, that's just one of the things that needs to be going on. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we now have 700 confirmed exoplanets. Um, just out of that, all the other data, I just want to uh, mention that we do have 700 confirmed exoplanets. Um, and it's amazing that we're at this point in the Kepler mission is actually looking at a tiny region of the Milky Way in a very small fraction of stars in the galaxy. Um, and because the stars are being sampled by Kepler are very similar to predominant types of stars in the Milky Way um, galaxy, uh, we are getting basically, in a sense, a just narrow little pencil beam mm-hmm. of um, stars that may or may not be Earth-like or, or that we discover. So... That perspective is pretty mind-blowing in and of itself because it's just that tiny little point that they're looking at. And, and what else could the universe contain beyond that? So like I mentioned before, like every solar system is not going to be a situation of, oh, we have planet one, two, three, four, and 5 around a single star. You have a, It's not a, going to look like ours per right. se. You have a, a variety of exoplanets uh, and a variety of solar systems, right? You have planets that are orbiting multiple stars mm-hmm. uh, where you would conceivably have a if, if you had a planet you could stand on in that system you might have two you would have two suns in the sky right at the same time or at different times depending on how things are uh, how the celestial mechanics are, are panning out um, you have planets that don't orbit stars at all which sounds kind of crazy yeah they're just kind of rogue yeah it's just on their own yeah um, and then you have at least uh, one that uh, is as airy as styrofoam yeah yeah, and this is what they're calling the uh, planetary zoo because mm-hmm. they're talking about the, the variety of planets that they're discovering and their atmospheres and their their weights and dimensions. And it turns out that there are smaller, more smaller planets than there are large ones, um, at least in, in the area that they're looking in. But it does point to this diversity and this idea that things don't always work the way we think they do. And so we probably need to reframe the way that um, we're approaching things sometimes. And we may even need to reconsider what the habitable, habitable zone is. Uh, a super-Earth is basically a, a planet that is more massive than Earth, but is still expected to be predominantly rocky. And that's something that we want, right, when we're yeah. talking about an Earth-like planet. We want it to be rocky like ours and not gaseous and hot. Um, 
And this is a quote from Sarah Seeger. She is um, an amazing um, speaker, and she's actually an astrophysicist and and, um, a planet hunter, per se. And she says, the diversity of exoplanets has really forced us to reconsider what the habitable zone really is. For example, some of these super-Earths are massive enough that they could retain a different atmosphere than we have on Earth. These super-Earths may hold on to the light gases, hydrogen, and helium. In this case, if they have a massive atmosphere, they could have a massive greenhouse effect. Uh, so this could actually increase the range of habitable zone in a planetary system. Huh. So it's a little bit different than what we've thought of. We thought, okay, you have to have the exact uh, conditions that we have here on Earth. Mm-hmm. There's a, this, I can't help but think, and I, I imagine some of our listeners uh, are probably thinking of this as well, there was a, there was a PC game back in the day called Masters of Orion. They did two of them. Oh, they did a third one that was supposedly not that good, but they, they did two of these things. And it's, uh, it's, you know, it's where you have different spacefaring races and you're exploring uh, new uh, systems. And each system you discover will have a range of planets. And some of them will be too rocky, some of them will be gaseous. Only some of, some of them can be colonized to a certain extent and others not so much. And a lot of thought went into the game. It was a very smart early um, computer game. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, but even even it managed to I feel like it misses the mark on just the the vast variety because if this game if Masters of Orion lined up with what we know now about uh, the layout of uh, of other solar systems and the existence of exoplanets you would encounter a lot of these systems that would just have nothing in them right yeah yeah again you know we have this idea that you know other solar systems are supposed to be like ours but yeah, yeah they're vastly different some of them are spinning in in the, what we think of as the wrong direction. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, like Australian, uh, well, that doesn't really line up with the science all that well, but, but still backwards, uh, rotating solar systems. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so actually I was just thinking, like, how cool would it be if they had a planetary zoo tycoon game, similar to sort of what you're saying, if you've ever played zoo tycoon. You know, this is, again, another way to, to think about, or, well, at least our understanding of what's out there. It would be very interesting. Yeah. If they, if they took that sort of, that basic expansion and colonization computer game model mm-hmm. and really made it match up with, with what we know now and what the conceivable, uh, near to long-term future of, uh, of exploration is. I'm just thinking, yeah. you know, pull, put some really cool graphics of like pandas and, and <laughs> giraffes well, on too. planets yeah. and get kids to sort through the data for you. You can have like a million kids playing these games and inadvertently like uh, punching some data for you. It could, could be a win-win. Um, all right, so here's the question. How are these far-flung planets actually inferred? How do we know that they're out or we suspect they're out there? They don't actually say... Uh, definitively, 100% out there, they say inferred. Well, you have two types of detection, basically. You have di- you have direct detection and indirect detection. All right. Um, with direct detec- detection, you know, it's one thing to detect a star, but it's another thing to detect a planet. Uh, the visible light output by a planet like Jupiter is one billionth that of its star. Mm-hmm. But if you shift into the infrared spectrum, the contrast is merely a few thousandths. All right, so it, it helps to, to shift the uh, to shift out of uh, that visible light spectrum. Uh, you can also block out starlight and just focus on the corona, that outer plasma region mm-hmm. of the star's atmosphere, mm-hmm. and uh, then you can catch the shine of the planets. Um, Direct imaging is the only way to access some of the the really important qualities of an exoplanet, like how much water it has on its surface. Right. But then there are these indirect detection methods, and some of these are um, are, are pretty pretty crazy. Like, uh, oh, not direct, not crazy, but they're they're really they're really fascinating because it's not a direct 
uh, method of detection. You kind of have to find uh, have to find a uh, a workaround uh, to detect the presence of this planet. Yeah, are you talking about the biosignature gases? Uh, yes, that's one of the the, the methods that uh, that pops up. Um, I love this because it's like a game of Clue. Yeah, you know. Um, this is where different chemicals absorb or they take a bite out of the photons and light at different parts of the spectrum and can be used as a fingerprint um, of the atmosphere of this planet. So if we imagine the planet, we can run the light given off from it through a machine called a spectrograph, which analyzes the data to determine the chemicals in the planet's atmosphere. Um, some chemicals, which scientists call biomarkers, biomarkers may hint at life on a planet, at least. That doesn't mean that there's life. It just mm-hmm. means that if you have certain chemicals that are taking a bite out of that light spectrum and you can see it missing, then you can start to ascertain the percentages of chemicals in the atmosphere. And I think that is amazing. Yeah. There's also um, the weak gravity of a planet uh, mm-hmm. pulls the star into the small circular orbit and induces a minute wobble that can be detected using uh, radial velocity tracking. Uh, which is uh, which is pretty cool, and then there's uh, there's also this uh, scenario where the, uh, the the planet moves between a star and the observer, and the the luminosity shifts. There's, uh, there's yeah, that's that's the transit method, yep. and that's actually what the Kepler telescope is using. And uh, just to go back to the Kepler mission, we're talking about uh, basically a giant 98 megapixel digital camera that mm-hmm. is taking these photos. And we, like you were saying, uh, when it crosses the star, you're basically going to see. Um, that a little bit of the light is blocked out, and then the camera will measure a dip in the star's brightness. And if a planet is really what's causing that dip, it'll come around and cause the same kind of dip again and again and again. So a lot of this is pointing toward the, <laughs> this idea that you have to have a ton of patience if you are a planet hunter. Yeah, because, like I say, it's one thing to find a star. Um, we can uh, sometimes detect things like black holes, for instance, or potential black holes with gravitational lensing, where we see the way that the mass of an object uh, causes light to bend around it. Mm-hmm. Well, then there's gravitational microlensing, where you're kind of you're 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 observing the way that the star is causing light to bend, but then you're also on top of that observing the way that that star's planets are adding uh, in a smaller sense to the uh, the bending of that light. Yeah, and what I like about this too, um, this planet hunting, is that it kind of pulls in so many different disciplines. I mean, you have astrophysicists, you have physicists, you have astrobiologists who are really interested in um, trying to figure out what the atmosphere looked like in the mm-hmm. early days, because having that sort of data can help us then look at another planet and say, well, this could be an Earth-like planet perhaps in four billion years, because it really matches what we think the Earth looked like back in the day. Yeah. Um, or maybe it's halfway to that point. Uh, or, so it's really interesting that everybody is sharing all of this data and trying to to get to the to the answer to the question, which is, is there another us out there? Yeah, and you mentioned Clue earlier, and I, I keep coming back to that cause, because it's kind of like this, uh, it reminds me a lot of a high-tech uh, movie, TV show, crime scene, mm-hmm. where you have like people are coming in. Yeah. You have uh, yeah. you have botanists that are looking at what what, pl- what plants are doing. You yes. have uh, you know biologists. You have uh, entomologists coming in, fingerprint experts. People are shining lasers. All of these different disciplines are coming together. All of these different technologies coming together to put a face on this question mark. You know where uh, who is the killer, and uh, and we see a similar thing here with it with the question mark being. Is there another Earth? Is there is there another planet out there that uh, that resembles us? Yeah, and I like that that you pointed out that way. It is sort of backing up into the equation, 
and taking all of that data and trying to reconstruct the crime scene or the the scene of life, I guess, or the scene of possible life. Um, let's take a quick break, okay. and then when we get back, we'll talk about trying to find a true Earth twin. So we're back, and uh, yeah, the idea of finding a true Earth twin it reminds me a lot of house hunting because uh, you're looking at potential houses, mm-hmm. and some houses are not on the market at all. So there's not even you know like much like these solar systems uh, or even non-solar systems where there's just nothing resembling a planet uh, that we're interested in. Uh, and then you have then you have planets. Uh, I mean, then you have houses that are either uh, they're either too expensive. Or you get to look at them and they're just too run down, or or they look good at first, but then you find out that they have some sort of major problem, like uh, you know it's uh, part of the house is collapsing, or it's uh, its atmosphere is too heavy and, and won't allow life to exist in it. But right, you, you, you see what I'm saying I here? See what you're saying. It becomes this. It's like the Goldilocks scenario, except with a far pickier Goldilocks and so many more um, unacceptable containers of porridge. Well, if you are Sarah Seeger, the planetary scientist. Um, an astrophysicist, you do kind of want a mystery house, at least for her. She mm-hmm. she says she that we want to look at an atmosphere and search for things that are unusual. So our own atmosphere is 20% oxygen by volume if, she says, an alien civilization is looking at us from four light years away, presumably with an awesome telescope, and it knows something about chemistry, then it will know that we have millions to billions of times more oxygen than we should if there were no life on Earth. So that should be a clue to them there's something going on here through photosynthesis, uh, through the interaction of oxygen and carbon dioxide that, that is not fitting uh, in line with what its composition should be. And so we're looking for something that's not right. We're looking in, in the same way that the murder investigation is, uh, ends up uh, chasing after individuals that are suspicious in some way, shape, or form, whose story doesn't quite add up. We're looking for that planet with a story that doesn't quite add up. Why does it have this much oxygen? Why yeah. was it spotted leaving its, its apartment at uh, 3 in the morning with yeah. a garbage bag? That's right. If yeah. you're the planetary dick detective, then this, these are the questions that you're yeah. asking. And um, and what I think is interesting is that these these 17 years, so much of this has just been an exercise. And let's, t- let's comb through the data and let's try to take measurements first. That was the first thing they wanted to do. Can we take measurements of these planets? Um the se- second thing is, can we figure out what's in the, hosp- um, the habitable zone? Can we start to really figure out uh, what they're made of? Are they hot and gassy? Are they rocky? Mm-hmm. And then it became, well, let's really see what's taking a bite out of the atmosphere here. Let's see if, if the composition can give us um, a clue as to an Earth-like twin for us. And now uh, Seeger and, and uh, obviously others in her labs are looking much more specifically at that data set that Kepler has given them, those 2,300 planetary candidates. And she is actually helping to build a prototype nanosatellite that will be launched in 2013. And she says that instead of looking at 156,000 distant stars, we hope to survey the very nearest sun-like star for transiting Earth-sized planets. So the return to studying individual exoplanets will be for those orbiting stars that are close enough for detailed follow-up. So they just keep honing in more and more on this idea that we can answer this question in this generation. And then coming in 2018, we have the James Webb Telescope, which is going to just even look more laser-focused at those habitable zones. 
Yeah. And Seeger was on a panel at the World Science Festival about exoplanets along with Natalie Abdahala. She's a physicist and team yeah, leader and you were there? for Kepler. Yeah. Yep. And Matt Mountain, the director of the Space Telescope Science Institute. Now, they all, it was a very spirited conversation and they all had different ideas about how to go about planet hunting. But I think they all agree, agree that, um, this is something that is going to happen in our generation. And they're pretty much hamstrung by the technology now. They could do it. They could find an Earth-like planet if they had every dollar at their disposal because um, they could build the right sort of um, instruments to do this with it. But they are saying that it's very hopeful that you have SpaceX, that you have uh, asteroid mining, and, and basically some private companies coming in and creating the technology, which will allow them, uh, just like the nanosatellite that Seeger is working on, to really get in and study it uh, much further. And it's, I think it's just a really exciting time to, to know that, um, you know, again, this Earth-like planet might be identified. Would we travel to it? Would there be aliens that consume us? I don't know. Yeah, it's it. I think I've mentioned this before, but it, things like this kind of remind me of uh, of that day uh, when I first started How Stuff Works, and the news uh, had hit that uh, some guys in rural Georgia had a cooler with a Bigfoot in it, with a, an actual <laughs> dead Sasquatch. Yeah. And for a split second there, I was kind of like, "Is this really going to happen? Is is this really going to turn out to be Bigfoot?" And of course, it it didn't. But uh, but there was a moment there of possibility, and. With uh, our search for exoplanets, that moment of possibility continues to uh, to draw out. Um, can draw out to the point where some people perhaps lose interest in it, and they just tend to think, "Oh well, I guess the rest of the universe is empty because we haven't found uh, that magic planet yet." But you know, some people would say there there are a lot of fish in the sea. There are a lot of planets uh, out there in the universe, and if we look long enough. Uh, we will find it. Well, and what they said on the panel is, if 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 anything, scientists are patient and they will come for the data and they yes. will find that needle in the haystack. It's just a matter of time. Um, Seeger said, and, and I thought this was interesting, if you want to look back to what we remember hundreds of years ago, inevitably it is the great explorers. Christopher Columbus didn't know what he was going to find and he came across North America. Many of us working in the field of exoplanets believe that thousands of years from now, when people look back at our generation in the early 21st century, they will remember the discovery of other Earths as one of our most significant accomplishments. That is the beginning of what's out there. What are the, what are the planets known? And in the future, we hope that our descendants will find signs of life. I don't know. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, I, I certainly hope to see it. I, I think that would just be a super exciting day. You know? I, yeah, I think it would be tremendous. And again, it's uh, what I love about stuff like this is that it forces us to recast our understanding of, of the universe, universe and our place in it. And we've talked a lot about that. So if it comes to fruition, that's pretty awesome. Cool. Well, uh, let's call the robot over. We, uh, we, he, we didn't call him over in the Prometheus episode because, A, it was super long, and also we had some, some rather uh, complex thoughts to uh, convey about the nature of AI. And, uh, yeah, basically we booted him out of the room because we didn't want to give him any funny, yeah, ideas, any funny ideas about how he could emulate David. Yeah. So, all right, let's see what we have here from listeners. Uh, well, this one was exciting because uh, we got hats. Uh, we did. Some other podcasters also uh, received these, and like them, we will we'll have to get a snapshot here of us wearing them. But uh, we heard from Adam. Uh, Adam wrote in to say, first I have to say I've been a lawyer, uh, a lawyer. I've been a loyal listener since uh, the stuff you missed in science class days. Um, 
and uh, you actually uh, read a listener uh, feedback I wrote about the oil industry on the old show, how it's not as luxurious as the ri- on the rigs as people think, though the platforms are nicer. As an engineer out of practice, uh, your episodes captivate the inner scientist and geek within me. Thank you for that. Switching gears for the past 10 months, I've been traveling through Latin America on what I call the Happy Nomad Tour. After being miserable, quote-unquote, living the dream of living, working in worry-free Denmark for a wind power company, I finally started asking myself what my passions are, what my dreams are, and what I want out of life. I call this process the happiness plunge. Um, which also sounds like maybe a like a novelty dessert that you would get. At, uh, I, I mean, I'm not making fun of it, plunge. but I can't. Like yeah, just the throw plunge, yourself yeah. back into a refreshing pool of tea. Yeah, but in a better this way because this, this is, is a pool better, of happiness. Yes. Uh, anyway, he continues. My goal as a traveler is to leave each place better than how I found it which I do by volunteering everywhere I go. I've had volunteering experiences such as feeding the elderly at nursing homes in Mexico, installing solar panels in rural Honduras, attracting book uh, donations for a rural library project in Peru, playing with kids at orphanages in Costa Rica and Ecuador, designing a financing strategy for a new NGO in El Salvador, and marketing an organization that turns donated used bikes into bike machines, washing machines, blenders, water well pumps, etc. in Guatemala. Uh, there's a lot I can offer as an engineer MBA. Uh, I listened to quite a few HSW podcasts on my 10 to 20 hour bus rides and wanted to, in a very small way, thank you for what you've given me. Peru is my last stop in Latin America, and I thought these uh, alpaca wool culios, are they chulios? I'm not going to guess at that because I feel like there's one pronunciation leave, with leave a very different up meaning. The pronunciation to me, then. We'll call them chulios. Uh, we're a great way to say thanks. And uh, no, it uh, doesn't get too cold. I know it doesn't get too cold in Atlanta, but still, I wanted to protect those knowledge-filled noggins. I'm at home now, visiting my family and preparing for the Asian leg of the Happy Nomad tour. I look forward to listening to you guys on the other side of the planet very soon. Once again, thank you for all you've taught me. I hope you know how appreciated you are. Your super fan, Adam, and he also shares uh, a couple of links here: um, happinessplunge one word dot com. That's the uh, website for this. And crazyhairfundraiser.com. Crazyhairfundraiser. H-A-I-R, not yeah. H-A-R-E. Um, yeah, thank you, Adam. It was really cool. Actually, even though it's 86 degrees in Atlanta today, I was wearing my hat this morning. Yeah. So I appreciate that and I appreciate your thoughts. Yeah, and, and it really it sounds like it. I mean, it's an awesome thing that you're doing. So yeah. keep it up. Yeah, I mean, gosh, some people take off a little time, rest. You, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're no uh, loafer there, I'll say that. Huh. And uh, and thanks for the hat. Thanks for writing in. Uh, if you guys would like to share something with us, um, especially if it's, it's the kind of thing you can post on Facebook, you can find us on Facebook where we are stuff to blow your mind. You can find us on Twitter where our handle is blow the mind. Let us know what you think about the search for exoplanets. What do you think it's going to be like the day that that breaks on uh, the local news channel? How is it going to be interpreted by pundits on various cable news channels? I don't know. We'll see what happens. I <laughs> uh, just had some thoughts on that. That'll be interesting. Um, you can also send us your thoughts via email at blowthemindatdiscovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Mm-hmm.